Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel. I've got Elias Randall back. Elias, a lot of big news this week in markets. I think I saw something that the S&P's down seven weeks in a row. It Yeah, it has to be six or seven at this point. So, I mean, that's it's not fun. I mean, I ask people if they're having fun yet, and the comments is not the common answer is not really. But I think the big fear for people, or at least people, are starting to hear rumblings about a recession, and we obviously don't know if there will be a recession. I think there's a majority of people, or I don't know, professionals think there may be. But what's interesting is you'd been doing some research on stock market pricing and and we've talked about before you know markets are forward looking and they tend to price in events meaning they'll price in a recession before we actually know that a recession is hit and there's been a lot of news articles the last couple of weeks about this and i think you pulled up a good one for maybe goldman sachs yeah i have one actually one from uh bloomberg and one from goldman sachs so they're both talking about the same ideas. Uh, the article in Bloomberg is saying U.S. and European stock markets are pricing in a 70% chance um, that the economy will slide into a recession. And then Goldman Sachs this morning put out an article headlined, a recession is not inevitable, but stocks are being priced as if it were. And then in their article, they actually quote saying that they believe stocks are pricing in a 100% chance uh, of recession. So I think that that highlights probably uh, where investor sentiment is right now. Now, is it overpriced? Um, has it overpriced the odds of recession? You know, that's a really hard question to answer because like you just said, we don't find out if we're in a recession until the economic data comes out. So basically you're in a recession for two quarters before you ever even get told, yes, it's officially a recession. And then the question comes, is a lot of the pain over in the stock market? And we don't know. We can look back at history and what has happened in the past. And everybody will say, you know, this time's different. Well, that's what they've said every other time. Every time there's these events, like, well, this time's different. We said that during COVID. This time's different. Said it during the financial crisis. This one's different, you know, because, you know, people are foreclosing on their homes and banks are going out of business. So this time's different and ended up being exactly the same as the other previous times we've had recessions or stock market drops. 100% of the time, the stock market has recovered when it, when it's went into a bear market. Yeah. I've, I've talked with people about that. The market has never not made a new all time high and actually like all time high prices. It's a, it's a persistent, metric like it it just it, it has always happened so i'm not i'm not going to be in the camp that believes we're never going to make an all-time high again market's never coming back i i won't be in that camp i can't tell you how long it's going to take to get back to the previous high um i guess right now my thoughts are that's probably going to depend on inflation and the inflation numbers i think that's what i'm kind of interested in now is seeing when will those numbers start to come down um, and I guess if we get to the end of this year, the end of 2022, and we still have inflation as high as it is right now, I don't think that's going to be good for investor sentiment. 
I think if we can get to the end of the year and inflation is starting to pull back to what we're normally having, the 2 to 3% target, I think sentiment will get more optimistic and we could maybe see a bull market get started again. So I guess I think I said it last week. I know I said it on the radio show this week. I'm just kind of like, for me, I, I, I don't want to get overly bullish or overly overly bearish either way at this point. Um, and, and I don't think, I don't think uh, investors should be getting too aggressive either way either. I think you should just kind of decide what's a strategy that's going to work for my situation right now and stick to it. So I think this would be some good data for people because one of the prevalent questions right now is, you know, what should I do? What's the market going to do? We don't know what it's going to do. But if you have a longer time horizon, let's say 20 years and you know, if you're retiring tomorrow, that doesn't mean that you don't have a 20 year time horizon. If you are 60 years old, you still have a 20 year time horizon more than likely. 65, you probably still have a 20 year time horizon. Should your philosophy change potentially, but I would pose this question to anybody who's thinking about getting out of the market. And I'm gonna give you a three year period of time where I believe people were getting out of the market. And during COVID, I'm going to fast forward a little bit, but COVID, people didn't have time to get out of the market. The drop was so fast and the recovery is so fast, they didn't have time to think about it. But when these nasty markets go out for a long time, meaning one year, two year, three years, it takes a different level of fortitude to have conviction to stay in a market. So I'm going to go back to 2000, the S&P, S&P 500s change for the year went down 10%. 2001, it was down 13. 2002 is down 23.37. So in 2002, everybody was saying, it's different this time. I'm not sure the market will ever come back. They were saying exactly what people are saying today. Do you know what the closing price was for 2002, year-end close, 2002 in the S&P 500? I do not know off the top of my head. Okay, I'm going to tell you in a second. But think about this. If in 2002, I said you should invest all of your money in the S&P 500, people would have said, man, you're crazy. No way. Year end, am I going to do that? If I turn roll back the clock and today, I said, I'll give you the 2002 price today. How much would you have put in? You'd be crazy not to put all your investable you'd assets have leveraged you'd have leveraged everything you had you'd have borrowed every dollar you had to go into the market the closing price for the s p 500 on 2002 is 879 points <laughs> yeah it's you know it closed around 3900 yesterday so what is that for just under 400 percent and at the same time they were saying exactly what people are saying today well it could go lower yeah it could and if it went Absolutely. lower would it have mattered because we went from 879 to 4,000, went to 4,500, 4,600, 2,001. If you would have bought in 2,000 before the market went down, it was still 1,320 points. You still had a 300% return. So trying to time when you get in and out, it just doesn't matter. If we have a recession, is it going to feel good? No. Is it going to matter long-term? Probably not. And interestingly enough, um, we have a Twitter hater from our our radio show, Elias. Molly, let me know that we had an official Twitter hater out there who wants to do the show <laughs> because he <laughs> believes doom and gloom is here forever. And he has zero factual data to back that up. So you know what I did? I went and did a little 
research about who this guy is. He's a day trading options trader. Go figure. Yeah, imagine that. He has, his time horizon is three hours probably, not 30 years. Right, and I mean, I don't know his track record, but that, that's what I would be interested in. And we also found out by doing research on him, he owns a, he owns a business, a delivery service business. So my first thought is, so you can run a business and manage money professionally. At a high so level. How, so how many, how many hedge fund managers are managing client money? How many portfolio managers are working at the biggest institutions in the world managing money professionally and run a business on the side of that? They wouldn't run a business on the side of their money management business if they were successful. Let That's me where I'm going. Let with me that. tell you how hard it is to beat markets consistently and outperform markets and manage money, and then to think that you'd have another business—it's almost impossible. Melvin Capital, the hedge fund Melvin Capital, which they got caught up in a lot of the the short short selling in 2020, um, 2021. They had 30% average returns. They just closed their doors. They shut down their hedge fund because they've underperformed the markets for a year and a half. That's how hard it is to manage money at a professional level, let alone have another business and think that you can manage your own money. It's just not anywhere remotely feasible to think that you could do a good job and do that. Yeah, and the, I'd also like to know how much money... Um you know, because Twitter's Twitter. So obviously someone says something negative on Twitter. I don't I don't put that much value into it. But, you know, the other consideration, how much money is, is this guy managing on the on behalf of other people? Does he have clients? Well, or, of course he doesn't. He doesn't have any licenses. He's an options trader. Right. He's or, got an E-Trade account or Rob, probably Robinhood. It's probably not even E-Trade. It's probably Robinhood. Yeah. So he's maybe trading. Maybe he has some buddies he taught how to do it. Maybe he does a TikTok video. He learned it from TikTok. Right. Every now and then. But um, I just really got a kick out of because some of his comments were uh, your show is dangerous for investing clients, even though we are giving we are giving what's what I consider to be like the most prudent advice. And we do full financial planning. So we're being as thorough as we can possibly be. And we're also providing one historical data we have access to research from all of the big institutions and he's in a he's in a minority when you say things like he's saying well the market go down 70% and never come back very few people believe that That's very never and very few professionals in the financial services business believe that it could happen but would you bet your money on it no i would i would never i wouldn't and here's the other thing he doesn't have any compliance department Every show we put out, it's reviewed by a compliance department. If they thought we were dangerous, guess what? We wouldn't right. put we, the we'd show be out. shut down. Yeah. So, you know, when you start to take advice from other people, you need, we've talked about this for years, for years. 15 years ago, Jeff came up with the idea that you should have a media filter. This is exactly why you need a media filter to figure out what's good information and what's bad information. And to go along with media filter, um, you know, because the news does a great job of sensationalizing all the news, but maybe a part of that media filter should also be like, I'm friends with this person filter. 
the guy who owns the delivery service that delivers goods to my business and he gave me a tip on how to trade options, you should maybe have a filter for that too. So I think the, like the media filter could be the uh, the big umbrella, but there's other aspects of that, like taking investment advice from your barber or the guy who mows your lawn or the the guy who remodeled your kitchen. Um, th- those are maybe not the most prudent places to be getting investment advice on your portfolio. I would I would agree with that. As we jump back to the recession question, I know you had those articles, and I thought he, this is what's really interesting. So I'm going to just reference the Bloomberg article that was put out here, I think about a week ago, um, where it shows the S&P 500 at this time was pricing a 70% chance recession. The U.S. high yield or U.S. uh, high yield credit market was pricing in a 30% chance recession and the five year bond was pricing a like 15 or 20 percent. And what this article articles actually talking about is potentially stocks have overpriced the recession risk. I mean, the fact that Goldman Sachs says they're priced at 100% means there's no margin for error. And if there's not a recession, then what happens? Do stocks rally back? I read a, I don't know if you read the, um, read the article from Tom Lee that Tom Lee put out this morning. I have this insight. Yet. Let me just read the headline to you. One more sell-off than shocking rally coming in the S&P 500 within days. And we've talked about this with people. So what he thinks is there's going to be another sell-off. And Tom Lee, for those who don't know who he is, he does a mass amount of research for hedge funds, the investment world. He's a perpetual bull, though, just a level set. He's not a perpetual bear. But we've talked about this. If the market makes it hard to get out when you should get out, and hard to get in when you should get in. Is it easy to get out of the market when it goes down every single day? No, it's not. Because here's what people want to do. Well, I'm going to wait for it to come back a little bit before I sell. And it just keeps going down. And then to get into the market, once it starts going up, no one wants to buy when the market's up. They're like, oh, well, it was, the S&P was at 4,000. And now it's at 4,200. I'll wait for it to go back to 4,000 may never go back there. So that's why we talk about not trying to time the market because it may be very hard to get back into the market when you want to, and not because you can't just press the button. It's that emotionally you won't be able to press the button. Correct. And so Tom Lee runs a research firm, right? And they do a lot of research for institutional money and hedge funds. And here's the thing about the professional money management Professional money management is making these decisions and they're looking at all the data, all the research, and really here's the reality of the situation. By the time retail investors actually know what's going on and then they want to do something, it's it's typically too late because I've talked to recently talked to some people. Well, we, we want to wait till the market starts coming back to to invest money. Well, a portfolio manager, they don't wait until the market starts coming back to start investing their money. They have different metrics that they're looking at and price targets, and they're going to put dollars to work in the stocks that they want to buy, or they're going to make the trades that they're going to make. And they're do- they're doing it. And by the time 
most retail investors can react. It's just, it's come and gone. So you either need to stick with what you're doing or, or I guess maybe just if you're a retail investor and you're struggling in this market, cause it's been hard the last five months, uh, you know, it might be a good opportunity to get in touch with a professional. You know, you could visit our website. You could ask someone, you know, in your local town. Um, it's almost, I'm kind of almost to the point where, and I think Jeff said this a while back, like when the market gets like this, if it doesn't move you to get a financial plan and be more prudent with your planning, what will? That's a good question for people. What is going to, what's going to get you over the line to actually make a plan and, and work with somebody? Well, that's interesting because I actually find most people that don't want to plan one of two things. They're vastly overconfident in their ability to plan this stuff out. And if you think a spreadsheet in Excel is sufficient, it's not. Yeah, that's archaic yeah. at this Listen, point. I've yeah. seen lots of spreadsheets in Excel. There's no, nobody is building them in some level to account for variance in there. They just assume I'm gonna make 6% every year and spend four and then I'll be okay. And nobody's ever made 6% every single year. Like that doesn't happen. If the market's average 9% a year, nobody makes nine every year. You know, for instance, I think the most dangerous calculator calculator out there is on the Dave Ramsey website. You go out to his calculator to calculate how much you're going to save for retirement. They default to a 12% rate of return. That's the default. That's the default, the 12%. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe a market or a segment of the market has returned 12% a year on average, but it has not returned 12% every single year. So people want to do that and use that calculator. I'm like, well, why don't you use seven or eight percent? That just kind of a uh, levels it out for the variance that could happen. But twelve percent every year, it's not realistic. I don't even know where you get that number. <laughs> yeah, that's. But people don't understand it, yeah. and here's why. I, I play this game with people at the office. If I have three investors, and they each invest one hundred thousand dollars, they each average eight percent rate of return. The human brain believes in 10 years, they all have the same amount of money. They each invest 100, they each average 8%, they should all have the same in the end, right? It's not accurate. That's, that's what people think. Variance will play a part in that. If somebody loses money the first year and one person makes money, it's likely the person who made money in the first year is gonna have more in the end just because of compound interest. And that's where you can't just use a static number in your financial planning scenarios that you're building on your, your Excel spreadsheet. So that's one, they're vastly overconfident in their ability to do this. And yep, if you saved up seven, eight, nine, ten million million and you spend 60,000 a year, you're right. You don't need a financial plan. You, you don't have to do any planning if you don't care about where the money goes after you're done. Okay. That's true. Yeah. Two, they don't want to hear the answer. They know they're not going to like the answer they get. They're not going to like somebody telling them that 8,000 a month you want to spend and you've saved up 800,000 bucks. That's not going to work. And, and I'll never forget this meeting. This is probably seven years ago. I had a meeting, Jeff and I were in this meeting together and these folks had come in, we'd done a first meeting. They come back to the next meeting. We see them pull up brand new Lexus, brand new BMW, they're driving separate cars, dual, dual household income. They're making like 350, 400,000. I mean, they're doing really well. And I want to say they're, I think they're like early fifties and they had like 3 million bucks saved. 
And they came in and we're doing a financial plan and we're like, how much do you want to spend? They're like, we want to spend 20,000 a month. Not joking. Okay. Like whatever you want to spend. If you think you have to live that lifestyle all the way through their retirement, great. Their probability of success was basically zero. Yeah, you have to have a lot more money to be able to spend at that rate. Yep. Exactly. They wanted to basically be spending what they're what they have now, but they hadn't accumulated enough. Well, they didn't become clients. They didn't like what we told them. They didn't like that they had to spend less. They didn't like the news that they hadn't saved enough to keep their lifestyle going. They felt that they were wealthy. And yeah, in most people's eyes, they were wealthy. They have high paying jobs. They're, you know, mass affluent. But that doesn't mean you can live that lifestyle. They didn't want to know the truth. So they'll just go and do it themselves. They're like, we're just going to keep doing it ourselves. Well, we knew what the answer was. The answer was they didn't believe what we told them. They thought they were wealthy and they could spend that. And unfortunately, what will happen is they'll run out if they try to live that lifestyle. Right. I mean, the yeah, just the, the, the tax hurdle on the money and $3 million at that distribution rate, that's just not, that's the, not sustainable. They had a 10-year runway, right? They still had 10 more years to go. You know, they were early 50s. They were wanting to retire when they were 60. So they had a 10-year runway to make the money go. But still, if you get to four or five million bucks. That's still not it, enough. Well, yeah, because if you're taking 20000 out a month to get 20000 it's really more like $35,000. you are taking from the portfolio, like 35000 bucks. Yeah. So then your distribution rate on $5 million is nearly 10%. Yeah, that's why I was just easy math. I was just kind of thinking you're going to have to have closer to 10 million investable yeah. to sustain that kind of spending. So that's the other reason people won't go get a plan and they don't want to know or they're, they're underprepared and they just don't want to face what the reality of the matter is. So speaking of recessions and the stuff we're talking about, Molly found the cool article on Forbes, how stocks perform before, during and after recessions may surprise you. Um, so we can probably put this chart on the website so people can go look at the different years. I'm just going to highlight uh, the averages of all these different years. So average return during a recession of all these different recessionary periods is negative 1%. Six months before a recession, the average return is negative 2%. 12 months before, negative 3%. Six months after, we're 7% positive. 12 months after, 16% positive. And then 20% positive returns after two years. So I think what this really highlights is even historically, um, and I know everyone says it's different this time, but recessions really, when you look at the bigger picture of investing, they're very, uh, they're, they're short-term events. And, and the market returns, although, although painful when it's happening, scary when it's happening. And then when you mix in the news, especially this year, this year has been, a, well, actually we say that every year, every year's, every year's a scary news year because there's always something scary in the news. And then this year had the market going down a terrible war over with Russia and Ukraine. And then all of the, you know, the Fed talk with interest rates rising and what that can do to markets and inflation, inflation just running as hot as it has in the last 40 or 50 years. Um, but I, I think I think really what the market has done historically, what I expect, stocks have been persistent and have been a good place for people to invest their wealth for a long time. And I made a comment to someone the other day, really, 
if you really want to get simplistic, when you if you bet against the stock market in the long term, meaning you're not going to invest your money there, you're really like you're making a bet against American businesses and American consumers. I don't see American businesses getting worse at making money, and I don't see Americans not becoming less consumers. I mean, in the world, we are the biggest consumers in the world. So are we really going to stop spending money and our business is going to stop making money? I don't think that's the case. I agree with you. I think people enjoy spending money. I think, you know, the first sign that people are overspending inflation's here is that credit card balances are starting to go up. I think you came in my office and mentioned that not too long ago. It's the first time credit card balances have come up in a long time. And that's probably a function of the free money's gone. Prices are up and people are unwilling to stop living their lifestyle. Right. So if that doesn't highlight the American consumer, okay, saving rates went up when? Well, during COVID and all the relief money went out. Now all the relief money has gone. And what's, what's rising now? Saving rates are going down and credit card spending is going up. So there's like, there's really like an unwillingness to stop spending money almost. Once you start, and I, I have a theory of this. Banks have made it very easy to spend money and encourage you to spend money. And I'll tell you why I say that. And two, the rise of internet shopping has just made spending money so easy. So I'm going to use my own personal experience. My wife and I forever we were first married, probably up until 07, 08. Just, we had cash, we wrote checks. Didn't really, like, we had a debit card, but we never used it at the store. It was like to get cash out. There was a local bank in 07 that said, hey, we're paying 5.75% interest on your checking account balance up to 25,000. So I'm like, man, that's a good deal. Like, I wanna make my thousand bucks a year just to keep the money at the bank. The caveat was, you had to swipe your your card. It was 10 or 15 times a month as a debit card, not a credit card. You had to use the, the debit feature, I think. I, it was one of, the, one of the other, debit credit, I don't remember. You had to use the card 15 time, times a month. Well, guess what happens? You get used to swiping that card. And all of a sudden, I'm like, man, we're spending a lot more money because we're swiping that card. And money becomes less real. It's, there's no there's no consequences. You're not giving money. Dave Ramsey talks about that. You carry cash because when you have to hand over a $100 bill, you think twice about it. Good example. I've got a $100 bill in my wallet. It's been there for like two months. Because you keep spending on your card. I'd rather you do the card because I don't want to give them a the $100 yeah, bill. I do, the, I do the same thing. I mean, I got to spend it soon. It's going to be like cut in half because it's, you know, comes in and out and but it's less real. So banks have made it very easy to spend money and go in debt and, you know, desensitize people for money. But the other thing that even I've realized personally, online shopping, Amazon or your favorite store has made it so easy to just spend 50, a hundred, $200 a day on stuff you don't need. You think about 25, 20 years ago when I got married, the only way you bought product for the most part in the early two thousands, you went to the store, or you had a magazine, both required effort. I remember ordering out of the Cabela's magazine. I'd have to call up and I'd give them the SKU number and they take your card over the phone. It wasn't easy. Now, if I de-deodorant, I go to Amazon, I hit buy now, it's at my house like the next day. So what's funny is you and I are 10 years apart in age. I've never bought anything out of a magazine. 
when you said that, that sounded like such a foreign idea to me. Elias, this almost reminds me. <laughs> but it's about, only 10 years. Reminds me of the show when you asked. If the internet was invented when you got married. Yeah. I was just a jab. I knew. I knew better. You spoke me in the eye. Yeah. But if you think about that, that is why credit card balances are higher. And with what's going on, man, I'd be concerned if you're carrying a big balance on a credit card right now. What are rates going to do? They're going to go to the maximum APRs if we get inflation. You watch. Credit card rates are going to bounce up. We've got mortgage rates at 5.5%. 5.5%. We haven't seen that in 20 years. Yeah, it's going to get. And, you know, if people are using credit cards just to make make ends meet, and there there could be people because inflation, I'm sh- for people who are pr- probably in like the bottom 25% of income earners, I mean, inflation is probably making it very hard for them to make uh, make their monthly budget work. We talked, I think you and I discussed just a person making 50,000 bucks that has one kid, two kids. Like that's the average, what's the average household income in America? 60 grand. So 5,000 a month before tax, call it 4,000 they get after tax. Okay. It's going to cost you at least a thousand bucks a month to have a place to live. And that's a crappy place to live. Probably. Yeah. And basically every market in every market. So now you got 3000 left, go to the grocery store and try to get out of the grocery store and buy anything remotely healthy. Try to get out of there for less than 150 bucks for the week. It's virtually impossible, but let's say you could, that's 600 bucks. So you're spending of your paycheck, 40% just on food, housing. Well, in today's society, a cell phone's virtually impossible to not have. I mean, I would almost consider a cell phone a necessity. I don't quite want to go there, but I almost consider it a necessity. I mean, go try to transact business anywhere. Go out to eat. You need a cell phone. I mean, my kid, we check him into school. You have to have a cell phone to check him into school. What's cell phone cost? 150 bucks, hundred bucks. Most What's gas? Time, yeah. Now you're spending 400 bucks a month to fill your car with gas. The people, like you said, this 25%, they are struggling to make ends meet. You know, if you're the top 10% of incomers, is inflation fun? No. Do they really care? It's not no. going to change your lifestyle very it's much. It's not going to change your life. So I think that, you know, that's very, very challenging for people. Another interesting thing about inflation as we're talking about it, I don't know if you caught this. I was listening to CNBC a day or two ago and Jim Cramer was talking about interest rates and housing prices. And not that I think Jim Cramer knows everything, but he's much more knowledgeable about markets than I am. I'm guessing he is getting dumped a ton of research that I'm not. So I'd listen to what he says. And I get it. He's an entertainer. Somebody asked him what it was going to take for housing prices to start to fall 7 to 8% interest rates. That's what he said. And he said, they're coming. So you think about that. How excited are people going to be about buying a house and paying a 7 or 8% interest rate when they've never paid over 55 Unless they're an older generation. That generation probably has their house paid for. Yeah, the, the generation of people buying homes for the first or second time right now, that's going to be a major shock because we've been in a low interest rate environment for so long. Um, it's going to make, it's going to make certain houses, you know, at 3% interest, you can afford a certain house, but then at 8%, you probably can't afford that house. At least a a lot of, in a lot of people's situation. Well, 
and I just I saw this article the other day. I don't know where it was, but it was talking about how home ownership and the American dream of home home ownership for a lot of people's over. They're priced out of the market to be able to buy a house. Okay, over for what indefinitely, or just maybe over at this for point a little in time. Bit? They yeah. I mean, you look around. You can barely buy anything. Number one, if it's for sale, it's gone right away. Makes me think about your buddy who sold his house. He's waiting for prices to go down like a year and a half ago. Yeah, They haven't gone down. They've gone up. Yep. Which he he found a place and he bought one. But yeah, even back then I was telling him, I don't, I don't agree with you. I don't see, I don't see how we could get into a, to an environment where prices come down. Um, according to Kramer, it's seven or 8% interest rates and we may very well get there but that still doesn't change the fact that the demand for housing just far outweighs the supply right now that's the real fundamental issue it is but there's going to be a crack at some point i'm gonna give you a great example and i'm not predicting that housing prices are falling or there's going to be a collapse of the housing market but something's going to happen my uncle moved out to phoenix literally they bought a house like three months ago you know how hard that is to buy a house in phoenix i got a house bought he said at the time they met with a new home builder and people are building homes today, having homes built. They don't ever plan on living there and they're making a 20 or 25% profit to sell that house. And if the person who's building that house isn't paying cash, there could be a big issue because when you started building the house, that rate was three and a half percent. And most rate locks are what, 45 to 60 days, maybe 90 days max. Well, construction timelines are six months to nine months out. So you started building this house thinking that, hey, you know, the interest rate's three and a half percent. It's going to be around there. And they go from three and a half to six and a half. One, can you still afford the house? I know how people buy homes. People go to their bank. They say, how much can I get approved for? Oh, you're approved for 500000 they go to the home builder. I'm approved for 500,000. So what do they do? They build the house for 500, for 500 yeah, they and they max it out and they spend out and they spend 15% more. Cause that's just how building a house goes. Like <laughs> there's always 10 to 15% of overruns. Yeah. Well, they could afford that house for 500,000 at a three and a half percent interest rate at six and a half. They probably can't. So now what Most happens to that house? Now a builder has the house. Is a builder going to sit on the house and have this negative carry for a long time? Or is the builder going to be like, dude, I got to get off of this house. They're and that's where it. you're going to start. It. That's where you're going to start to see some price compression. I'm not saying it's going to collapse, but that scenario is going to play itself out. Someone's building a house at top dollar. I mean, this is the go look at lumber. It's all back up. I mean, it's very, very expensive to build a house. Very expensive. So, I think those are some things that, you know, as we start to talk about recession and markets and housing prices and inflation, like those are the things I like to think about that could potentially turn, you know, inflation to have some negative pressures. And that's why we're raising interest rates. We're raising rates to cool inflation. I mean, that's exactly why they're doing it. And do I think we'll come to equal equilibrium at a reasonable rate at some point? Yeah, but it's going to be a little bit of pain to get there. Yeah, it, it is. It will be some pain to get there. And I read a um, LPL, our broker dealer put out a blog post and I read it and I thought one of the insightful points of that regarding inflation and raising interest rates 
So the person who wrote it pointed out, you can raise interest rates and that doesn't fix supply chain issues. Now, there were some points in the article about some of the supply chain things are starting to get worked out and figured out. So if we can keep that going in the right direction, that will certainly help inflation. But I thought that was a good point because you can raise rates. You can raise rates high and keep raising them as high as you want. But if the supply chain can't get the goods where it needs and demand stays where it is, that it's hard to curb inflation that way. Well, that's a good point because in America, COVID's not over. But I think we all feel like it's not as big of a deal as it was a year, year and a half ago. And I go back to my family getting sick a couple of weeks ago. You went two days and we were all sick, but we didn't test for COVID until the second day. A year ago, if you had a sniffle. Yeah, you dro- drove to the grocery store. You were getting a COVID test. test. Yeah. And I think people don't realize that right now in China, they're having their largest outbreak since March of 2020. They're shut down. They have a zero COVID policy. So that's still, while we're back to business in America, it's not back to business in every single country around the world. And our supply chain is so globally interconnected that it's still being massively disrupted by China not being open. Yeah, and China is a huge part of that, the global supply chain and getting goods, especially here and all around the world. So, you know, that's there's going to be drag on that until they can open their economy and get back to full business. It's just kind of going to be waiting for that, at least a little bit, right? Part of it. I mean, I don't know. I know there's still supply chain issues because I can't buy a cheese tombstone pizza anywhere. My It's driving my wife crazy. Cheese tombstone? Cheese, you can't find tombs- them? Nope, not a high not a Target. She cannot find a cheese tombstone pizza. So I told her you have to That's go with a different brand. But I'm just thinking about supply chain. I'm like, well, what's going on? Why can't she find a cheese one? That's what that's the first world problems in our family right now. But with that said, I want to thank everybody for listening to the show today. Um, if you need any help, go to btwellshow.com. We'd be happy to help you. You can click get started and go check out some of the graphs we're gonna post from today's show. It'll provide a little historical context as you know, we provide information on the show. We try to back it up with facts and reason and not just somebody's opinion. So appreciate having you on the show again today, Elias. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.